I spoke to teachers and trainers about what sort of professional development they were getting to be able to effectively teach online and there was a, a real mixed bag there. Some spoke about training that they'd done which was very specific to online delivery and then uh, some mentioned you know that they were getting training on the maybe more the technical side how to upload their stuff to the system uh, but not necessarily how to create good delivery. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today's topic is online learning. Our vocational voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER, and Dr. Tabitha Griffin, Senior Research Officer, NCVER. Welcome both to the podcast. Hello, Steve. Thank you. Tabitha, I'd like to start with you. You were the lead author on an NCVER report late last year entitled Online Delivery of Vet Qualifications, Current Use and Outcomes, and it found that online delivery of vet courses leads to mixed outcomes. What was meant by mixed outcomes? Well, we uh, looked at a number of different outcomes for students who are doing their um, vet qualifications entirely online. Uh, So, for example, we looked at uh, completion rates and we found that they tended to be lower for students who were uh, doing their courses online. Um, We also found that student satisfaction was a little bit lower, um, although it was still at about 80%, so it wasn't terrible. Uh, But employment outcomes, um, they looked quite good for students who had graduated from online courses. They were either similar to or in in some cases better than um, students who had graduated from uh, courses from other delivery modes. So it was quite mixed. Mm, We're going to dive into more of that in just a moment. Before we go too far, though, uh, Simon, how common is it? for entire VET qualifications to be acquired exclusively through online learning? Well, the the short answer through the study that Tabitha did was a little less than 9%, but we do need to know that there was, we had to use a proxy for determining what is fully online delivery. The data we collect doesn't specifically ask providers whether the whole qualification is delivered online, Uh, And in fact, the only information we get is at the subject level. So they're the subjects that form part of the qualification. And what we do get are information about what we call, as Tabitha indicated, the modes of delivery. And they have some choices. One is classroom-based, which is your typical institutional setting. One is electronic-based, and that's the proxy we used for online learning, and a couple of others, including employment-based, like for an apprenticeship. Now, electronic-based covers more than just what we might conceive of online learning. So it could be, for example, electronic media used in a classroom. So it is not a perfect proxy, but nonetheless, on the basis that e-learning was the predominant delivery mode, and that all the units they were enrolled in for that qualification were going through that study mode, we assumed that to be or used as a proxy for online learning. Hmm. Now, I happen to know that a number of listeners to Vocational Voices do love getting behind into the data. What, where, how did you, what were the data sources you were using? Because I note there's qualitative as well as quantitative uh, findings throughout the report. Yeah, that's right. So we used a a, a mixed um, mode um, for this project. Um, 
the quantitative parts, uh, so for looking at program commencements and uh, completion rates, for example, we drew data from the uh, National Vet Provider Collection uh, to look at student satisfaction and employment outcomes for students. We used data from the National Student Outcomes Survey and then to really get an idea of um, how online delivery is being done out there and uh, what makes for good good quality or good practice in online delivery, we interviewed um, just over 30 teachers and trainers from RTOs um, spread across Australia and, and talked to them about it. And ironically, were those interviews face-to-face or electronically? <laughs> a little bit of both, actually. <laughs> uh, most of it was by phone, but I did go and visit a local RTO and uh, speak to them face-to-face. <laughs> uh, now, do we know from your research what some of the main reasons were for people failing to complete online courses? I guess um, given the, the, the recent history in the vet sector and concerns about quality, I guess it's easy to jump to the conclusion that it might be due to poor quality. Um, but when we spoke to uh, the teachers and trainers, uh, they told us a, a whole bunch of different reasons why people might withdraw or, or not complete. Um, so these included things like their delivery mode just not suiting the individual. Um, obviously, it's quite different to face-to-face um, training and, and it just doesn't suit everybody. Um, students might have had a lack of awareness about what was involved in doing the course, uh, whether they had to do a work placement, um, even whether they had the right resources uh, to do it, even something as simple as needing access to a computer. Um, one teacher said to me they had someone call up and thought they could do it all on their mobile phone. Oh, so, um, you know, they, these are these are issues that, that they come up against. Um, it's also possible that students might have uh, different intentions when they enrol in an online course. Perhaps they're only... Uh, intending to do one or two subjects or several subjects um, but unfortunately the the data that we've got access to doesn't really tell us to what extent these things are happening and we would need to uh, go out and interview or survey non-completers to get a better idea of, of how much these different things are happening. I'm curious just to reflect together on the choice for someone to do a course online because I just did last year some post-grad units uh, online and despite my best intentions when you're sitting there at the dining room table with your laptop open with the zoom session happening uh, and your kids are wandering in or there's something that needs your attention it really is it's not just the course provider that has the pressure to make this work there's something about our life it actually is quite a a cultural decision someone makes reflections on that simon or tabitha yeah, look, I think, and having also uh, done an online module, uh, it, it, it is, well, I wouldn't say this was necessarily typical, why would you do something online? It's usually because you're possibly already working and that it's a convenience to be able to do that rather than attend an institution. Um, and that's hard if you've got time pressures and family pressures to be able to do a full-time job put yourself through the motions of life and family and then sit down and do an online course. So it doesn't really surprise me in some ways that the, some of these issues arise. Um, and I do know from fairly dated research when I was in the sector uh, at a TAFE college that young people, particularly school leavers, 
and you might think that with all the new technology that they adapt themselves to online learning, but in fact, because they've come out of an institutional setting and are used to the supports that you would get in a more face-to-face environment, they actually struggle with what we called back then self-paced learning and their completion rates were very poor compared to the average. Yes, and I would just add that, you know, some of the advantages um, for doing online learning, like, for example, um, you know, being self-paced and, and um, you know, being accessible all the time are the very same things that can make the, make it difficult for other people to succeed in doing the study. Um, some people need the structure. Some people, um, you know, need that face-to-face explanation um, to be able to understand what they're looking at. So it's uh, not surprising. I, and I suppose one other thing that came out of the report was the nature of the course. So what was identified in Tabitha's study was, and it's somewhat intuitive, if you're doing a course which you would expect to have a high practical component, and we used fitness qualifications for one, then really uh, some courses lend themselves to online delivery probably more than others. And so uh, I'm going to come back to that to finish off with some recommendations for people running courses. While we're just finishing off the cultural thought about our society adopting online courses, we did develop a special room for the television many decades ago to give it focus. Moving forward, I wonder if a special room in the house needs to be dedicated to online study, you know, to lock yourself away, a bit like a traditional study. Who knows? That might be a, a fuel for a longitudinal study by someone. <laughs> um, now also, just on the comparing completely online courses, mixed delivery and face-to-face courses, do we see much difference in completion rates as a general rule when you look across that variety? Yeah, so as Simon said before, there were some data limitations which uh, made it difficult for us to compare fully online to other modes such as mixed modes. Um, So in our research, we just looked at um, completion rates for fully online compared to all programs. Um, But the good news is that there has been some changes to how delivery mode is collected um, in the data. And so going forward, I'm hoping that we might be able to get a a better view, a more nuanced view on how those different delivery modes compare. How soon, what sort of cohorts are going to be captured in this way? Uh, Well, the data just started uh, being collected that way last year, I believe. So, um, you know, I think uh, as we go forward the next couple of years, hopefully we'll be able to get a a better view on completion rates in particular for those different types of delivery modes. Yeah, and just to be clear, the the main change was that under the previous data standard, which the research is based, you had to choose one or the other. Mm. This one gives you the option of choosing more than one, mm. although, and despite what uh, Tabitha said, I'm not sure yet until we see it whether, in fact, that'll help or hinder <laughs> <laughs> the analysis. <laughs> These are the challenges that boffins faced, isn't it, isn't it really? So, Tabitha, as a researcher, what goes through your mind? Uh, well, I guess, you know, in this case, we're talking about administrative data, so it's not designed for research purposes so uh, you know we have to look at it and 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 think about how we might be able to use it but it's it's not the you know it's not the purpose for which it's been collected in the first place 
you might need to do an online course. On <laughs> yeah. uh, now, if we're looking, moving forward, we love in vocational voices to think constructively about what might be some guidelines to ponder moving forward. Thinking about reflecting on your research, what sort of guidelines do you think will help improve completion rates through online learning from what you've seen? So when we um, interviewed teachers and trainers, we asked them uh, what they thought were important factors for uh, good practice in online delivery. And some strong themes came out of that that uh, could potentially improve completion rates. So these included things like um, a positive and supportive attitude and ethos in the training provider, uh, ensuring that students have realistic expectations of the course and the delivery mode when they enrol, having well-structured current engaging resources uh, that cater to a range of learning styles, um, making sure there's an effective and accessible student support system in place, and lastly, um, having highly skilled and knowledgeable teachers who display empathy and are creative problem solvers. Um, we found uh, when, when talking to teachers and trainers that um, students faced a, a myriad of problems um, when trying to complete their online training, particularly in terms of assessment. And the number of creative things that uh, these teachers described to me um, to enable their students to um, be able to submit assessment um, was, was really surprising and quite a positive thing. Um, the only other thing to add to that perhaps is some interesting observations from the people that Tabitha interviewed who said that the technology, if I can use the term broadly, for delivering online actually hasn't changed much mm. in the last 10 years. Um, so you could envisage a time in the brave new world of virtual reality or something else where in fact there might be better and more sophisticated media that would make the program better for both parties. I don't know what that is yet, but I, I, I was very intrigued by the comment that the overall technology that underpinned it has really been the same for, for a number of years. And yet, interestingly, <coughs> in reflecting on that, when you look at the guidelines that have come from this research at the moment, none of them seem to be dependent on the technology factor. It's that human, that empathy interaction mm -hmm. there, which is the thing that comes back. It's the same with interviews. Face-to-face, -face, you often get a warmer, richer engagement and connection with people. So one might wonder if there's a novelty factor from the technology that will in interest some people and the immersion visually and orally may well be useful. But if the kids are coming up and tapping you on the shoulder while you're doing that, you're still back to square one. Yeah, and I think one of the really important points to come out of the study was good quality is good quality whether you're doing something online or not. Mm -hmm. Good teachers are, has always been known to be the single biggest difference in the outcome for a student and good teachers whether it's online or otherwise are still a vital part of that process. Mm, absolutely I'd agree and most of the attributes that the interviewees mentioned um, for good practice were things that were important for all training modes. Um, it's just that how they're implemented might be slightly different online compared to in the classroom. Mm. Now we often uh, ponder how this might these sorts of findings might impact vet service providers. Uh, uh, but from a student perspective, looking at those guidelines again, talking about uh, a positive uh, ethos and expectations, engagement, etc. 
How might we fashion this to be a useful resource for students? I mean, what you've provided seems to be a great matrix for a potential vet student to make some assessments and differentiation between providers. Oh, gosh, I think, um, you know, it's really difficult. The, um, the vet sector, as we know, is, is a complicated space and it's difficult for students to navigate. Um, but uh, it's true, um, if, if they were able to get a, a sense of these things, um, perhaps knowing what questions to ask when they're looking to enrol at an RTO, perhaps about the support services available and, you know, who, who do they get to talk to if they have a problem, um, I guess they might be able to have some confidence then in, in being able to get through their course. Mm. I'd be looking as a vet service provider at these guidelines as, as setting up some competency uh, elements for our own trainers, our own staff, because mm-hmm. if we're ticking those boxes, we're going to have surely much greater improvements in completion rates, wouldn't you think? Yeah, uh, just on the point of uh, the competence and expertise of the trainers, there's been a long history of debate about uh, teachers who are having to continually upskill in these new delivery modes. And this is well before online learning. This is just using electronic media within classrooms. Um, and it's a constant challenge for both the institutions and the, and the trainers themselves to have to keep up to date with that technology. And yet hearteningly, as we just talked about before, it's more the human soft aspect of those skills where but we have the challenge and i'm currently involved in theater at the moment live theater does not go uh, transfer well to video the best play looks flat and distant when it's on video and so here we might have great classrooms teacher teachers but it is a different skill set to convey that if there's live video involved in the course Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I I spoke to teachers and trainers about what sort of professional development they were getting um, to uh, be able to effectively teach online. And there was a a real mixed bag there. Um, Some spoke about um, training that they'd done, which was very specific to online delivery. Uh, But some spoke about more general um, training, which, you know, they've They've tried to pull bits out that they might be able to use in online delivery, but it might not have been, you know, specifically about that. And then uh, some mentioned, you know, that they were getting training on the maybe more the technical side, how to upload their stuff to the system, uh, but not necessarily how to create uh, good good delivery content to deliver. Mm we still have work to do in this Mm. field. It's exciting, though. We're on the the cusp of really maturing in this uh, aspect of uh, education. Um, Just coming back to the thing you talked about earlier, Simon, about some courses more appropriate to online than others, uh, is it really down to, do you think, where practical aspects to learning are key or are there other factors that would say this is better face-to-face or with mixed mode than purely online? What sort of uh, factors would we consider? Well, if I gave you a, um, a fairly basic example of this, if you're doing a apprenticeship in carpentry, for example, um, there's a long history of integrating employment and reinforcing those skills on the job actually doing carpentry with the theoretical studies that you might do at a training provider. Now... That is very difficult to do fully online. (laughs) That said, we know that there are now simulated training um, 
programs that, for example, that can do virtual welding, oh. um, and and they go on and on. So, you, so I'm never one to limit the possibilities of technology. Uh, although in that particular instance for welding, I, I have had discussions with a number of industry people who say, look, not bad, but it still won't give you the same outcome as actual proper using the equipment in in a world in a real world uh, environment. So. That would be something that I think would be easily understood to be something that would be very difficult to do fully online. Doesn't stop people, and this is kind of coming back to the study, of a mixed mode of delivery. So what subjects within those quals do suit online? And obviously a lot of theoretical subjects possibly lend themselves, but something that requires an absolute... um, and ultimately an assessment of their hand skills is sort of difficult in the moment to envisage being done fully online. Yeah, although I will go back onto your side, being more pro-tech there, because if you have got very sensitively calibrated controls, you'll be measuring movement, pressure, force, reaction time probably more accurately than a human could assess. (laughs) I think you can go and speak to a carpenter about that one because I'm not going into there. someone's just banging their hammer a bit louder while they listen. Um, Let's finish off with some thoughts about industry itself. If it's looking in uh, at this research and we're thinking about the trainers, we're thinking about the students, what would they take from your findings, do you think, Tamar? Well, I think uh, for industry, um, online delivery can be a very attractive option, particularly um, for... um, you know, employees, for example, they can um, do some training while they're still at work, for example. Um, I guess with any form of delivery, uh, there there are pros and cons. And uh, I think that the take-home message for industry is to not disregard online delivery um, straight out, but, but understand that it can be very effective if it's done well. And is it typically more cost-effective from industries or the training organisations' perspective, or is it fairly cost-neutral? I think um, I think it's a mistake for a training provider to think that it's a cheap alternative um, to delivering training. Um, I think the development of the materials requires uh, time and expertise, and the support structures that need to be in place uh, require proper resourcing. So it's definitely, you know, not necessarily a, a less expensive alternative um, but I think it uh, it can be rolled out more broadly and I think perhaps for um, on the flip side for the users it can potentially be less expensive you ha- you don't have to worry about travel um, and and um, things like that so it can be effective that way yeah and I think it, uh, it depends a little bit on the scale of the operation so I'm thinking of a of an extension to the study that um, Tabitha did, which has got some conventional vet quals and a thing called a MOOC. Now, of course, they were designed for mass audiences. So you can design content and the big costs are in the design side of it and the development of the product. But if you can defray that across 100,000 people, mm. then clearly there's some economies there. And uh, I think scale really makes a difference in terms of the economic viability of some mm. of these things. Because yeah, that certainly got quite heady a few years ago mm. and it seemed to have tapered off. But You know why? Why? Because no one completed them. Yeah. yeah, and that is where we're at. And that's where the value of this research comes in, mm. to start going back and thinking about mm. that. Yeah. Okay, so it's a mixture of technology and the human aspect. You've won, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Now, if someone wants to dive deeper into this, these reports or your report is available on the NCV uh, website, I imagine? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. 
All right. Um, Dr. Tabitha Griffin, thank you. Thank you. Simon Walker, thank you. Thank you. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.